Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles and I will sing to thy name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And then Isaiah says, there shall come a root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles hope. And now may the God of hope Fill you all with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is Romans chapter 15. I read up until verse 13. That's where we left off two weeks ago. And then Micah was here last week. I was driving to Dallas, Texas last week. I stopped for the night along with my wife. We stopped in the little town of Hope, Arkansas. 
That's my regular stop. You know, the first time that I stopped there when I was on my way to the conference in Texas years ago, I was very impressed with this particular hotel because they had open Bibles in every room along with a notice that they left on the bed saying that they treated their hotel as a ministry. It was a Christian-run hotel, and from that point forward, I thought, on my way to Dallas, as I go a couple times each year, I will always stay at this hotel because I like the witness and it makes me feel safe. So we stopped at Hope, Arkansas. When I told Megan that we were in Hope, Arkansas, and that everything there was titled Hope something, the Hope Police Department, the Hope Fire Department, the Hospital at Hope, or the Hope Hospital. When I said that to Megan, she said, so everything there just runs on hope? I mean, if you call the fire department and say, my house is on fire, do they go, well, I hope things get better. I hope it rains. <laughs> we, we got nothing for you here but a bunch of hope. Anyway, I get home. So Micah needs to listen to, or Megan needs to listen to Micah's sermon. Well, that's kind of my point. I'm, I'm building there. You're two steps ahead of me. So I got home. I got the recording, took it home to upload it to the website. And Michael was talking about hope. So this morning, I'm going to start by talking about hope. Seems like a theme. In fact, Micah said to me that he was curious to see two weeks ago what I was going to say about verse 13, to see how much I was going to step on his sermon. Hope. The God of hope. That is one of the titles that Paul gives him, the God of hope. Hope, which means to me that if you have hope, if you have that anticipation of what you know is coming, if you have that confident expectation, that's what the Greek word means. It doesn't mean, gee, I hope something happens like I hope it rains and then my house won't be on fire. I hope it might happen, it might not. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means a confident looking forward to what you know is coming. And you have all the promises of God in the Bible that we know are ours and our promises are still coming. We read about things like God's ultimate redemption of each of us, body, soul, spirit. One day our bodies are going to come up out of the grave, hard to imagine, and yet that's what we confidently look forward to. That's what we expect because that's what the Word of God says. Well, if you have that kind of confident expectation of the things that God has said, that is hope. That is what peace is. So when we refer to the God of hope, that implies that Paul thinks that the quality of that kind of hopefulness, that kind of confident expectation, comes to us as a gift from God. He is the God of hope. You can't have that kind of hope, that kind of expectation, that kind of looking forward to what God's going to do. You can't have that kind of expectation without God giving you that hope. People ask me sometimes, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I'm, that I'm saved? And it's always back to, what are you believing? 
Are you looking forward to the things that God's going to do in your life? Do you have faith? Do you have that kind of confidence in God that he's going to handle your eternity once you launch off this planet? If you do, well, you couldn't naturally have that. Your flesh can't conjure that up. Your fleshly mind can't create that kind of hope and confidence and faith. It can only come to you as a result of God working in and through you. And that is the theology of Paul, and it just permeates everything he says, especially verse 13, because look at all the other things that he also attributes to God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So where do you get real joy and peace? Where do you get that cessation of againstness that was always between you and God? When you were fleshly men who were not and in fact could not be subject to the law of God, where did you get that kind of peace where you know that God is no longer against you? Well, you got it from God because the very God of hope is the one who filled you with that joy and peace. So he is the author of the joy and peace that is within you. Now let's talk about that word joy for just a moment because joy... Godly joy, biblical joy, is not the same as happiness. God did not promise you nonstop happiness. The word happy has the same root as words like happenstance, which is the circumstances of life. Things just happen. Same word as happy. Your happiness is a result of your reaction to the things that actually happen in life. And sometimes the things that happen in life will indeed make you happy. It's your birthday, somebody surprises you with a cake, and you finally got what you were looking for. Well, you're you're happy at that moment, but that's not the same as the joy that Paul is talking about. The joy that he's talking about is the recognition as you walk through this life that you're secure that God is not against you, that your eternity is determined for you, and that nothing in heaven, hell, or earth can be against you. After all, Paul has already said back in chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you have that kind of confidence, if you have that kind of knowledge, that no matter what the circumstances of life are, no matter what the happenings of life are, that you're okay you're eternally okay, that you're going to be all right when you stand before God, you're going to be accepted as the beloved of God, you're not going to be cast from his sight, that gives you a great deal of confidence and hope that results in joy, the kind of joy this world cannot give you. This world, let's be honest, is nuts. This world is out of control. This world is going crazy. This world, it seems like every new day that comes around, there's some new circumstance, some new happenstance, something to upend everything that you thought was true yesterday. The nonstop 24-hour news cycle is doing nothing but feeding you bad news all the time. And it doesn't matter where you turn in this world, whether you turn to entertainment or politics or 
societal norms. They're all constantly changing. They're all in a state of flux. And so you don't, you don't have any real hopeful confidence. You don't have any real joy in the events and the happenings of this world. The only place that you can have real joy is if you know that the God of eternity, the one who has tomorrow in his hands, the God who is the creator God who chose and loved some people. If he wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and you know that because he's for you, nothing can be against you. If you have that going for you, then you have some idea what real joy is despite the circumstances. Okay, so where does that joy come from? God, God has to give it to you. The God of hope has to give you the confident expectation of what's coming. The God of hope has to give you the joy. And the God of hope has to give you the peace that Paul refers to as the peace that passes understanding. The kind of peace that when the people of this world look at you, they think, how can you be so at ease How can you be so confident and peaceful when the whole world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket? How can you look at the craziness of this world and still say, God's got it. Mm -hmm. The absolutely sovereign maker of everything knows what he's doing. I'm in his hands and nobody can separate me and him Because nobody's bigger than God to separate us. Therefore, I have the peace that passes understanding. Where does that kind of peace come from? God God again. The God of hope gives you hope. The God of hope fills you with joy. Doesn't just give you a little bit of joy. Doesn't just sprinkle a little peace your way. The God of hope fills you with joy. Fills you with peace, by the way, with that language of being full of joy and peace. How much room is left over for all that other stuff? Mm. Doubt or anger or hatred. There's really no room for that because you're full of things like joy and peace because the God of hope filled you with that. But then look at the last word. Of the first phrase of verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. How? By believing. In believing. Now, number one, that implies to me that it's God who gives you the believing. But the methodology through which he gives you the hope and the peace and the joy is that he calls you to believe in his son. Once you have faith... You know that that is just the active verb form of the word faith in the Greek. He gives you faithing. He gives you the activity of having faith. And that activity of having faith in the finished work of Christ results in you having hope and joy and peace. Can you remember yourself back in the days before you believed? Back before the Bible had any real influence on your thoughts or on your behavior. I can tell you something and guarantee you something about you. Back in the days when you did not believe, you also did not have hope or joy or peace. You were constantly worried that the turmoil of this world was going to get you and that the turmoil of whatever happened after this life 
was going to be really bad for you. But you never had that settled contentment, that sense of God's got this, God is for me, God is on my side, and therefore I'm going to endure whatever it is that comes my way, the circumstances of life. I remember in my young days, back in my 20s in Los Angeles, I got up every day with this sense of what's going to happen today. Every day had sufficient turmoil to get me through the day. But then as I came to Christ, as I came to understand the things of the word of God, as I came to understand the sovereignty of God and his control over all things, there was an automatic removal of that weight off my shoulders because I realized, oh, I'm actually in a really good place. At this very moment, I am, let's see, let me do the math. Oh, 64 years old. I know, I know, it's stunning. 64 years, I can now say the same way that David said, I have been young, I am old now, but I have been young, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen the seed begging bread. I can look back on my life now and say, God has been faithful to me my whole life. I've never slept in the streets. I've never gone truly hungry. I've always had at least one car in the driveway. I've always had a roof over my head. I've had clothes to wear. I've had food every day. Why? Because faithful God, the God of hope, the creator God who's in charge of everything, takes care of his people, just as he said he would. You would think that between the word of God and my experiences now, I'd be able to look back at all that and say, I'm at peace. I'm content. I have genuine joy. I've served out most of the years that I'm probably going to be here on the planet. And so I have this confident expectation of what is coming. I have real hope. And that real hope comes from the God of hope. Who, Paul says, gives you hope, gives you joy, gives you peace, and gives you the faithing that results in the joy, the peace, and the hope. Do you understand that? That's a really, really sovereign God, or a God who's in complete control. And that kind of God can give you the gifts of his Holy Spirit that you can't attain any other way. You can go through your whole life clutching at the circumstances and happenstance of this world and never reach the point of true, genuine contentment and true, genuine joy and the peace that passes understanding. You will never, ever reach that by your flesh. You can only reach that by the Spirit of God taking up habitation inside you and granting you faith and hope and peace and joy. So then Paul says that. Not only does he expect you to be filled with hope, because the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace in believing, but then you will abound, overflowing in hope. Not just full to the brim, but full to the brim and abounding, abundance of hope. And may you have that abounding hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So what I just said, only by the Holy Spirit of God, only by that gift of the Holy Spirit of God are you going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and only through your faith in Jesus Christ are you going to have hope despite the circumstances of this life. Only then are you going to have joy. Only then are you going to have peace because you believe in Jesus Christ, which is a gift that God gave you through the Holy Spirit. That's the Pauline theology right there. God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit. God did all the giving and he gave all that through grace, 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 grace. He was really, really good to some people. And if you are one of those people that he was that good to, then you really ought to thank him. It really ought to give you that heart of thankfulness and confidence so that you can march through this world and the slings and arrows of this world knowing that you're okay if God is for you, who can be against you? That is where we left off last week. Have I said the word hope enough yet this morning? Probably not. We're probably going to say it some more. But I just want you to understand that that confident expectation that Michael was talking about last week is truly and genuinely a gift of God that results from believing, which is a gift from God. God gives you the faith to believe, which results in the joy and the peace and the hope being yours. So far, are we in agreement, Micah? Didn't you enjoy what Micah preached last week, by the way? He really did a very good job explaining to us what biblical hope was. I said it was really good. You had to one-up me to outstanding. You had to go there. Is that? (laughs) So now Paul is beginning to kind of wrap up his letter. The rest of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 is Paul saying the very long goodbye. Starting in verse 14, he is addressing the people he's been writing to through this whole letter. He's been writing to a Jewish church and a Gentile church there in Rome, even though he himself has never been in Rome. And now he wants to tell them he recognizes, he understands that they can admonish one another. They can lift one another up. They can correct each other in the faith. They can conduct the faith without him because, after all, they've been doing it. He's never been to Rome, and yet these churches exist. And so he recognizes that they are capable of continuing in the faith without him. But, as verse 15 is going to say, but I wrote to you very boldly so that I could remind you of some really important stuff. The way Paul puts it is, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself, the Greek word there is autos, also am convinced that you yourself, again, autos, I've told you before that word autos has just moved into the English language. It's a reference back to self, which is why the translators would say I myself and you yourself in the English language when you see words like automobile. It means it mobilizes itself. It has an engine in it, so it works automatic. It works on its own, by itself. Okay, so then he said, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. 
Now, that does not mean, remembering that this is the same Paul who earlier in this letter said, there's none that does good. There's no one who ever stirred himself up to seek God. So Paul has already told us that after the flesh, that there's nobody who's actually good, actually righteous, actually holy. So that can't be what he's talking about here. When he says, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness and full of all knowledge, all gnosis, posnosis. He's not saying, you now know everything there is to ever know. What he's saying is, when it comes to Christianity, you understand the doing and the word. You understand how you should behave. That's your goodness. And you are full of the knowledge of Christianity in such a way that you're able also to admonish one another, to build one another up, to feed each other the faith, to lift each other up in Christianity. So that's the extent to which he is saying you're full of all goodness and all knowledge. He's not saying all the goodness that ever existed resides in you. That would make them God. And he's not saying all the knowledge that can ever be known in the history of the world is in you. He's saying as pertains to Christianity, as pertains to your ability to look out for each other without me, I'm fully confident that you're able to do that. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. So as to remind you again, here is Paul saying, I already know that you understand the Christian faith. I believe that you are fully committed to the things of Christ. Paul didn't bring Christianity to Rome. So he's fully confident that they can continue in the faith on their own. And yet, nevertheless, he wrote this whole letter, this deep theological letter, this very involved and complicated and wonderful treatise. He wrote to them for what reason? To remind them. That's a really important point, I think, because we Christians need to be reminded. We need to be reminded all the time. So let's say we get together on Sundays and some of us on Wednesdays to remind ourselves, to remind each other. And then you leave and you go out through those doors and you get in your car and you go back to the world. You go back to your job. You go back to your friends and associates and your family. And you're inundated with all this worldly stuff. With all of this godless stuff, you need to be reminded. You need to come back here regularly and go, oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. I remember what's important now. I I remember. I've been reminded now. Yes, God who is sovereign and in control, he's got me. He's taking care of me. He's taking me through my life. He's in control of the circumstances of my life. You need to be reminded of this. Paul wrote things in this letter as we've been going through it verse by verse. He has already said things like God predestined certain people, elected, chose certain people. And those are the people that he justified. And those are the people that he glorified. You need to be reminded of that. You need to recall it all the time that, oh, yeah, God is for me. So really, what can the world 
do against me. Paul thought this was so important that he wrote this whole long letter to people who apparently already knew it, but he felt it was necessary to write it again and say, remember this. You need to be reminded of these important Christian principles. I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. So Paul is now going to say that the reason that he became the apostle to the Gentiles, the reason that he's written these letters and has planted, literally planted these churches all over these Gentile areas is because God, by his grace, gave Paul that commission and then gave Paul, the power, the strength to do that. And remember, it wasn't an easy gig. It wasn't an easy job. Five times beaten with lashes, day and night in the deep, in hungerings often, starving, stoned outside of Lystra, left for dead. I mean, if that was the job description, none of us would sign up. We'd all say, no, I, I, I admire that Paul would do that, but that's a little much for me. That's what Paul had to do in order to plant these churches in these Gentile areas. And yet, in recalling what he had done, he said, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that took me through it. This is the same Paul who had a thorn in the flesh. He said it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And three times he went to God and asked that it would be removed. And each time God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace will get you through these circumstances. So he looks back on it and recalls that it was the grace of God that gave him the ability to do the things that he did. In other words, Paul takes no credit. Paul at no point here is going to say, well, it's a good thing I was strong enough and adequate enough to get out there and be convincing enough to plant these churches among the Gentiles and get them to believe and get them to understand. Never. What he's going to say is, it was the grace of God working through me that even allowed me to accomplish anything, and it's all accomplished for the glory of God, for the raising up of the name of Christ. That's Paul's attitude all the way across, that he remains nothing, Christ remains everything, and that any good thing he accomplished, he accomplished because of the goodness and the grace of God working through him despite horrific circumstances. Verse 16, he said, it's because of the grace of God that was given to me that I am a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That word, by the way, is liturgus. It's the word from which we get liturgy or liturgical, all those kinds of words. In a moment, he's going to talk again about ministering, and he's going to use a completely different compound word that is really fascinating. But it is the grace of God that was given to him from God that allowed him to even be a minister, a liturgus of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The only reason that he was able to go out and preach the gospel to people with whom he had no common language, he had no common history, he had no common verbiage that he could use that would ring a bell with them. For instance, we Christians 
there are certain words I can say to you that we just all understand and agree in common. People who don't even know Christ or go to the church understand words like bless. You can say, well, that's a real blessing. I have friends and I'll say, how are you? And they say, oh, blessed, just blessed. They say it so often I don't even think they understand what they're saying anymore. They're spiritually prosperous because of the grace of God. That's what the word blessed means. So that kind of common language allows us to communicate. When we're talking to somebody who knows nothing about Christianity, we can use blessing as like a linchpin as an entry into our conversation with them about Christ. Because we can say, oh, blessed, and then we can define it like I just did, and then say, where did that blessing come from? It came from God to begin with. Well, that's my entrance into that conversation. Paul didn't have that, is my point. He was dealing with Gentiles, most of whom he had grown up hating, and who had grown up hating Jews. The Jews and the Gentiles were at enmity, at hatred with each other. And then along comes this little Jewish evangelist who he describes himself as not very attractive to begin with. And then he shows up to tell Gentiles about the things of Christ and he has no common starting place. And yet he's got to tell them that there is a savior that came out of Jerusalem, this one who has a history of prophecy behind him. And that he arrived in Jerusalem and that he died for the forgiveness of sin. Okay, now that's a pretty simple concept, except that the Gentiles don't even know what sin is. So you've got to go back again. You've got to begin with, okay, before a completely holy God, oh yeah, have I explained that God is utterly righteous and utterly holy? Okay, he's really good, really holy, really righteous. You're not. You're really not. You're completely not. You're utterly depraved. You're completely fallen in your sinfulness. And oh yeah, that sinfulness is a result of Adam and Eve. Okay, you don't even know Adam and Eve. Can you see how difficult it would be to do that kind of evangelistic work to people who don't have any common starting place? And so Paul continued by the grace of God, through the gifts of God, through the working of miracles... He brought about conversion to the Gentiles. Why? Because he's about to say, because it was prophesied that the Gentiles were going to come to faith. And since he knew the word of God, and since he knew that God had already said that Gentiles were going to come to faith, he knew there were some Gentiles that were going to come to faith, and that gave him the confidence to go out there in the boldness of God and preach Jesus Christ, knowing that some of them were going to get it. Mm. Not because of Paul's excellence of speech, not because of Paul's great character or ability to convince people or his logic or anything else. It was going to be because God had said he was going to change the hearts, the minds, the spirits of some Gentiles. And because Paul knew those people were out there, those sheep of God, he was determined to get to them to tell them the gospel because that's the means by which God saves people and he knew for sure that some were going to be saved. So he got out there and took the beatings, took the stonings, took the hunger, took all the circumstances he had to go through because he was so sure of God's promise that there were some Gentiles that were going to come to faith. 
That, by the way, is the best inspiration for evangelization I can think of. If you know for sure that some people are going to get it, then you're going to go out there and tell it and tell it and tell it. Because those people who don't get it, those people who reject it, those people who, like Jesus described, are going to trample on your pearls and then turn and tear you, those aren't the ones that you're looking for. You're looking for the sheep. You're looking for the people who, when you tell them the gospel, the lights come on and everybody's home. And they get it. And if you know they're there, then you have every inspiration to go out and look for them. They exist. Well, if you understand the Pauline theology back in chapter 9 and 10, as he's talking about election, and that God chose some people before the foundation of the world and wrote their names down in the Lamb's book of life, and if you understand that God predestined, again, Pauline language, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, that he predestined some people to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those are the people that he called and that he justified and that he glorified. If you know that God has already done that work of choosing those people, they just don't know who they are yet then you have every inspiration to get out there and tell it and tell it and tell it because every once in a while you're going to tell it to somebody who's been waiting to hear it. Somebody who's going to recognize within themselves the call of God on their lives. And again, that's not because of them. It's not because there's anything better in them, that they're smarter, that they run faster, jump higher. It's not because they were the clever ones who figured it out. And it's not because you were such a good evangelist or a good orator or you were really convincing or logical. It is all the work of God utilizing his people to accomplish his purpose, which is bringing some people to his son, bringing them to the faith that results in hope and joy and peace. See there? I said hope again. Okay, so let's let Paul say everything I just said. Verse 15 again, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace of God that was given to me from God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles... And then that next series of words, ministering as a priest, is a single compound word that actually means to be a worker in sacred things, which is why the NASB translated it as working as a priest or being like a priest, because in the Old Testament, the priests were the workers with sacred things. They would go in and care for the things of the tabernacle or of the temple. They were the only ones who could do the work in front of God. So Paul picks up that concept, that language of workers with sacred things, and he says, I'm that kind of worker. I am a minister of Jesus Christ, ministering like a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable to God. So Paul saw the work that he did in bringing about faith among the Gentiles Some believers then came to light, came to reality, came to faith about Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, I like a good priest. Do you know what a priest does? A priest offers to God. A priest is the one who takes the sacrificial offerings to God. All the various different offerings. 
Whether it's a sin offering, whether it's a wave offering, a sheave offering, whether it's a, a drink offering, those offerings have to be brought to God by a priest. So Paul then likens himself to a priest, a worker with sacred things, and says, the offering that I am bringing to God is the Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ through the work that God gave me to do by faith. Isn't that great language? Again, God gets all the glory because Paul recognizes that it is God who brought these people to faith. But then he is offering those people to God and he wants them to be acceptable to God. An acceptable offering. I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable to God. How is that going to happen? Only if they are sanctified. And they are sanctified not by Paul, not by his work, not by the word. They are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's the proof positive. That's the evidence that God has accepted them. God has accepted them because he put his Holy Spirit in them. And God, if he begins a good work in you, is going to see it through to its completion. In other words, if God has ever put his Holy Spirit in you, he intends that you're going to wind up with him in all eternity because he's already given you the down payment. He's already given you the gift of his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has set you apart from the whole rest of humanity, which is what the word sanctified means. It's the same root word as saints or as holy. It's hagias, hagiasmas, words like that. And those words mean to be set apart for God's exclusive use. Now, who set you apart for God's exclusive use? God did. How did he demonstrate that? He gave you his Holy Spirit. As a result of him giving you his Holy Spirit, you come to faith. You come to believe in Christ and everything that Christ did, resulting in your joy and your peace and your hope. But it's also demonstrated by the fact that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is your state, then an absolutely sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning has already guaranteed, as we saw in chapter 9, has already guaranteed that that God did that for you because he predestined you, because he chose you, because he called you, because he justified you, because he's already glorified you. See the Pauline theology? See how this works? In other words, I'll see if I can simplify it. It ain't up to you. Amen. It's up to God. And if God has done all of this for you, that is an exceptionally gracious work. Amen. That is exceptionally kind of the God who owed you nothing. And yet, despite the fact that he owed you nothing and you were busy rebelling against him, being an enemy of God and living your life according to your own fleshly desires and wants and sinfulness, despite that, he in grace, he in goodness reached down to get you and put his very spirit inside you, sealing you for the day of redemption, guaranteeing that he is going to get you all the way to your eternally promised home. And that's really good news. That's news on which you can base your joy and your peace and your hope. I did it again.
Okay, so the grace of God has made me a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. That my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified, set apart from the rest of the world by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, recognizing that that's all the work of God, says in verse 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. He can't boast in himself. He's not boasting, look what I did. Look how hard I worked. Look at all the places I went. Look at the beatings that I took. He's got nothing to boast in within himself He's only an unprofitable servant doing what it is his duty to do for his master. But he has found, he says, I have found something I can boast in. I boast in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found a reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. By the way, the reason that I started where I did this morning. I started back in verse 8 that Jesus had become minister servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises of God that were given to the fathers. I think that's still in Paul's mind, that concept, that idea, when he says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. The things pertaining to God are all those things written in what we call the Old Testament. But now he can say confidently that all those things are still true, as he's done in chapters 9, 10, and 11, as he did by stating that Christ was a minister to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God in order to confirm the promises that were made to the fathers. Paul, rather than seeing pessimism, rather than being forced to say, where is God in our current state? Israel was scattered. The northern tribes, the northern nations were scattered among the Gentile nations and hadn't been back to the land that had been promised to them. And Judah itself had been through bondage and was still in a scattered state. And yet the promises of God were always that God was going to regather them, bring them back to their land. And what are you going to do? You're going to look at the circumstances and Paul's got nothing on which he can boast, nothing in which he can say, oh yeah, God is absolutely keeping his word right now for us because none of his circumstances would demonstrate that that's what God was doing. And yet in Christ Jesus, in knowing that Christ Jesus through him, all the promises of God are yes and amen, knowing that he was able to say in Jesus, all the promises that were given to the fathers are now confirmed. He's still going to do the things he said he was going to do. And as a consequence, Paul says, I can boast now. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. Everything God ever said, he's going to do. All the promises he has made to Israel and to the forefathers, those are good promises. He's going to do those things. And therefore, Paul says, I can boast now again in God because of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus gives me cause, gives me reason to boast in the things of God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So I'm not boasting about me. I'm not boasting about my authority, my good speech, my ability to convince people. I'm saying that Christ working through me accomplished great things And what he did was he fulfilled 
the scripture. He fulfilled the promise of God that the Gentiles were going to be brought to faith. And how was that done? It was done by word and deed. It was done in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And in fully preaching that gospel, he demonstrated the gospel. He demonstrated Christianity both in word and in deed. Not just here's the word of God, but now apply the word of God. Don't just let the word of God become intellectual head knowledge. I know there's a tendency, well, I will just simply say, I have a tendency to use a lot of big words, silver dollar words. I remember being in college when somebody accused me of using too many silver dollar words, and I said, well, I'm talking to too many nickel mines. <laughs> um, never mind. I know that I explain theological things that I try to dig into the Greek language where appropriate. I know that I try to simplify these big, complicated, theological, historical, biblical things. And sometimes it can become just an intellectual exercise. I don't want you to ever reach the point where that's all you do is hear this stuff and think, wow, I am really intellectually stimulated. I think I'll come back next week and listen to that guy again. If it doesn't also apply to your heart, if it doesn't also apply to your actions, if it isn't changing who you are and how you behave, then you still haven't learned it. All you've done is heard the words. All you've done is been intellectually stimulated by the words, but you haven't yet truly understand, understood what Christianity is. Mm -hmm. Christianity does not just work in word. If it was just about in word, then you could say, okay, I know it, and I'm going to go home and sit in a room by myself and never do anything about it. But it's word and deed. Christianity genuinely is the word of God, the understanding of the gospel, the sound doctrine that Paul teaches, but then at the same time, it's deed. It's going out and living it. It's walking out your life in a way that reflects the things you've learned in the word. And Paul demonstrated that among the Gentiles. By the power of Jesus Christ working through him, by the Holy Spirit of God, he brought Gentiles to the obedience of the faith in word and in deed. Because there's two sides to the Christian equation. And also then in the power of signs and wonders. He demonstrated powers. He demonstrated signs and wonders. When he was on the Isle of Malta, you might recall that he was bitten by a snake, and then he just shook it off, and the residents of Malta expected him to drop dead, and nothing happened to him at all. And so then they started worshiping him like a god, and he had to explain to them, no, no, it's not me. This is about Jesus Christ. And then he went about healing people on Malta. And so the people on Malta were sad to see him go, naturally. You've got a man of God in your midst. So part of how he brought the gospel to the Gentiles was by word and deed, but also in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's think for just a moment about the power of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. 
Is there anybody here who can remember when you did not care about the things of the Bible or the things of God? Do you remember that? That'd be everybody in the room but Christian because he grew up in this church. (laughs) Yeah, I can remember not caring about the Bible. I can remember not caring about the things of Christ. I don't care about God. I do my own thing. I make up my own mind. That's me. And then one day, I couldn't escape it. One day, the thing that mattered most to me was to look into the word of God. I was suddenly aware of and afraid of my eternity and the judgment of God. And I was suddenly aware that I was a sinner before an absolutely holy God. How did I come to that conclusion? It wasn't my intellect. It wasn't my flesh. It's not something I figured out. How did I come to that conclusion? By the power of the Holy Spirit. God, by his spirit, convicted me of my sin and made me realize the necessity of a Savior. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly became precious to me. That's what I really longed for and cared about. And suddenly I found myself pouring through this book, this Bible, and I've been doing it all these years, looking at it again and again and again to try to get more understanding, more comprehension of this God on whom I so desperately depend. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. He not only initially convicted me, but he causes me to persevere in the faith. He causes me to continue to want to know more about God. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So this Christianity that Paul brought to the Gentiles brought them to the obedience of the faith, both in word and in deed. And then there was the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul could say, I don't presume to speak of anything about himself. I only want to talk about what Christ accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit. Paul's got nothing that he can brag about. He had to say all the power is God's. The revelation is God's, the drawing is God's, the calling is God's, the justifying, the separation, the sanctifying. That's all God who did all of that. He just used me to tell people what was happening to them. And as a result of his preaching of the gospel, the Gentiles became an acceptable offering to God. Wonderful! Wouldn't you like to be an acceptable offering before God? Yes. Wouldn't you like to stand before God and say, I'm nothing, and yet I offer all that I am to you because you saved me. You enlightened me. You opened my eyes. You unstopped my ears. You changed my heart. You drew me from eternity past, and you have promised me eternity future with you and you did all of it and all I want to be to you is acceptable which is why Paul earlier in this letter would say use your body as an acceptable living offering to God 
Just walk out your life with that knowledge. Walk out your life with the knowledge that you have been offered to God as an acceptable offering. And therefore, if you have been accepted by the God who owed you nothing, then you certainly owe him everything. And you should walk that way. Behave that way. In everything. Because you don't get like Tuesday afternoons off from being an offering to God. You can't go, well, I'm having a big old fight with my wife, but I can get away with it because it's Tuesday afternoon. Instead, you have to recognize that this is a a 24-hour-a-day obligation that you have to the God who saved you by his grace. We're nearly done. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. Remember earlier I said to you, when he went among the Gentiles, they had no common starting place. They had no common language. They had no verbiage, language that they could use that would give them some commonality. And that was on purpose. Paul went to places where Christ wasn't known, where Christ had never been named. He wanted to take people from ground zero. He wanted to start at scratch and explain to them who Christ was and what Christ had done. I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, So that I would not build on another man's foundation, but, verse 21, this is that verse that I referred to earlier where I said that Paul knew the elect among the Gentiles existed. Because it already said it in the scripture. He was able to look back at the Bible and read the words that say in Isaiah, they who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard of him shall understand. Paul's thinking is, well, that's the very word of God. God, through his prophet Isaiah, has guaranteed that there are some elect among the Gentiles. So I'm going to go out and preach among the Gentiles because God has guaranteed success. He has guaranteed that some people are going to understand. Some people are going to come to faith in Christ. Some people are going to be an acceptable offering that I can give to God as the fruit of my work and my ministry. So I aspired not to preach the gospel where he had already been named so that I would not be building on any other man's foundation. But I know it's written, they who had no news of him shall see him. And they who have not heard of him will understand him. And so for this reason, I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and yet I have for many years been longing to come to you. That's where we will pick up next week. We will talk about Paul's intentions to come to Rome, that he was really headed to Spain. But there are certain verses that when I read Paul's language, just kind of is like a gut punch. You'll notice here that Paul, after giving his back to all those beatings, Paul, after giving his body to all the tortures and stonings that he went through so that he could bring Gentiles to faith as an acceptable offering to God, you will notice that he says here, there is now no further place for me in these regions. You would think that Paul, who brought the very word of God to these Gentiles, would be the most welcome person in those regions. But because he stirred up 
people in those regions. Because he brought faith and because he was overturning the Gentile worlds with the stories of Jesus and of God, the only God, and that Caesar is not God, and that their pantheons of gods were not gods, he found himself to be persona non grata in most of the places where he had brought people to faith in Christ. It's kind of like when he's in Rome, when he's under house arrest and saying, all of Asia has forsaken me. And yet, Paul kept doing it. He kept telling it. He kept repeating it. He kept reminding people of it. Friday night, Micah and Jeff and Tom and I got together at my house, as we do every other month, just kind of men of the church meeting where we talk about how's the church doing, what else can we do. And we went down a tangent where we remembered the years behind us, almost 19 years now here in this building. And And we talked about the people that have been here and the people who aren't here and the people who come and go. And uh, it kind of made us all a little depressed, I think. (laughs) Had we not known the sovereignty of God in leading his church, Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Therefore, I'm confident that Christ is still in the business of creating his church. And so we concluded That as long as some people keep showing up here, we're just going to keep doing what we're called to do, which is preaching this gospel among the Gentiles over and over and over again, reminding people over and over and over again, telling people of an absolutely sovereign God who by grace did for us the things that we could not do for ourselves because we all collectively long to be a suitable and acceptable offering to God. Amen. You got it? Yes, it. All right. Questions? It's good. It's clear. We understand that section of Paul's writing. Well, then, very good. We are going to sing one more hymn. Steve, if you would. Danielle and I agree. This is one of our favorite hymns. I hope you will sing it as a prayer because that's what it is. 334.
listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.